And though the road is rocky, I'm ready to try the next mile to break sight to the blind man. It's down to the dead child, we will survive in this country wilderness. Swimming through the waters of Babylon like a rebel fish. Journalist, specialist, critical and survivalist. Spitting heaven, fight from his lips. Burn a safe driver. to time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. All that getting good understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to get involved in the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live audio at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. And the live audio is playing there also. You can go to abibitumi.com. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening. They stream from Ghana. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free radio app. In that TuneIn search engine, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you had a Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an Awakening Radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, you can type in time for an Awakening Radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. It's Time for an Awakening video program with the fan page on Facebook and Time for an Awakening media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening media, interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also check out that Time for an Awakening marketplace in our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Uh, various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. <clears throat> it's 7.08 here in this uh, fall Sunday evening here in the city of Philadelphia uh, the Sunday October the 15th edition of Time for an Awakening our guest this evening and conversation author Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at Arsinus College Professor Edward Onasi is joining us in conversation the book Free the Land the Republic of New Africa and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State will be the surrounding topic of our discussion this evening 
And you can always get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. 
History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back. It's Time for an Awakening at 713 here in this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia, 7th and Arch Street, Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing fine. You know, Elliot, I, I have um, been, you know, as I've been going through, um, you know, just reinforcing, I guess, um, learning of, of my own position as far as, you know, this, you know, you'll hear me always say about sovereign thinking and, and self-determination and, you know, having a, a non-aligned thinking as a representative of a nation. I'm, I'm really glad that we're going to be in conversation with Brother Onasi around this, um, one of the premier, um, you know, theoreticians and organizers, um, you know, who felt it was important to materialize, um, you know, not just the conceptual framework of a nation within a nation, but to try to work towards operationalizing that. And in his book, you know, um, Free to Land, you know, um, the Republic of New Africa and the pursuit of, of the black nation state, I'm really um, going to be honored with, you know, to, to help us kind of really see this could, this is a real thing more than just something um, that people, you know, from the 19th century um, into the 20th century. And now we're in the 21st century, just um, talk about that. It's something that we can actually be doing um, individually and then collectively. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Richard, uh, you see what our people did in the mid to late 60s and, and, and uh, a lot of the uh, people that formed that movement organization are ancestors now. But the reason they did or made those moves, Richard, it ties into what's going on now and why we need these type of uh, uh, uh movements as a people to move to some type of sovereign and like you said non-aligned thinking which will change behaviors of a people we can't you know a perfect example is what's going on now mm -hmm. i mean i've for the past week since this has been going on i've seen several of the talking head shows like us face the nation beat the press nbc csnbc msnbc cnn and i've seen uh Black elected officials, quote-unquote powerful black elected officials on there. Hakeem Jeffries, uh, Gregory Meeks, Benny Thompson, uh, Lloyd Austin is not an elected official, and it's the, uh, Charles Brown that just took over as the Joint Chiefs of Staff. All of these people are black, and almost with one voice supporting what's going on now in between Israel and Gaza, supporting Israel. Now, they just had a black caucus 
legislative event about two weeks ago. And they boasted on their website that it's over 700 black elected officials nationwide representing over 60 million people. And I dare say that those out of the 60 million, the overwhelming majority of them are black. But they don't come back to our people, have town hall meetings to discuss any of these issues before they take a position. Your opinion is not considered. And you're the one that put them in office. It's something we're doing wrong, people. So we can't look at any of these things, whether it's the formation of the Republic of New Africa or any of the movements our ancestors did the late 1800s, early 1900s, and think of them as some type of nostalgia. It's something that drove those men and women to, to take those actions. It's necessary now. I'm glad that uh, we have uh, our guest on this evening that's going to open this up for us, and we're going to talk about it. Hopefully you'll get involved with questions and comments, and you can do that by dialing 215-490-9832. Our guest this evening, Arthur, Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at Osinus College, Professor Edward Onasi, is joining us in conversation. Professor Onasi, how are you, sir? I'm pretty good. Peace and blessings, and, and thank you for having me. How are you doing? Oh, doing great, and I'm glad to have you on time for an awakening with myself and Brother Richard. Yes, sir. Looking forward to the conversation. Professor Nazi, before we kind of open up and talk about the book and, and kind of get started, let's talk about uh, you and okay. why you sat down and wrote this piece. Because I, I, I think all of this ties in together. But talk about yourself as a, as a uh, professor on the collegiate okay. level and, and talk about why you wrote this book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, I'll just say uh, I, I pronounce my name Onichi, and I'd be happy to talk about okay, why I'm, that is. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, Go ahead. Nah, it's, it's all good. It's all good. I was just telling a friend earlier, some of us don't make it easy. So, <laughs> so it's all good. Okay. But yeah, I, I took up this research because as a young person, you know, ever since high school, at least, I was interested in learning more about my people's history, in particular, trying to figure out, well, what can I do to contribute to, you know, our liberation? I probably would have said it way differently back then, but how can I tribute, contribute to our liberation? And for me, I started to realize that I didn't really know anything, so I wanted to learn, and I felt like history digging into the history was the best way to learn and figure out my role. And I started to look into, you know, the civil rights movement, started looking into learning about Malcolm X, learning about the Black Panther Party. And as I'm doing this research just on my own, I start to see the words Republic of New Africa. And in addition to being interested in, in our history here in the U.S., I also developed an interest in African decolonization, African liberation struggles, and really took an interest in the idea of liberating land. And so as these two interests start to combine, and I again, I start to see the name Republic of New Africa, I finally asked, well, what is that, <laughs> right? And when I, I believe I first saw it because Huey Newton wrote a letter to Robert F. Williams, 
talking about the Republic of New Africa and, and, you know, it kind of blew my mind. So I started to do the research and the more I researched into it, the more I realized that this wasn't being taught. It wasn't being discussed widely. And for me, as someone who's interested in figuring out, well, how can we use the history to teach ourselves where we've been so we can do a better job from, you know, from my perspective, getting to where we need to be, this has got to be a part of the conversation. We have to talk about land and liberation and the Republic of New Africa, the New African independence movement became a, a great opportunity to think about some ideas that I just hadn't been exposed to and people just weren't bringing into the conversation. And so that's the short version of the story. It, it just kind of took off from there. Professor Onasi, wait a minute, I'll do it this way. I'm going to call you Professor Edward. <laughs> or Brother O. A lot of people call me Brother O. All right, Professor O. Good, Brother O. Um, let, let's start from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. The movement was founded. Now, I, I mean, we can really go back to the beginning, but let's go to the f- official founding of the movement being in 1968 in Detroit. You had a cross-section of people that were involved in founding the, uh, find, uh, uh, the formation of the movement. Activists and intellectuals, people from cross-sections of the community. Talk about the numbers of the people that was there that kind of founded things and the cross-section of people that were involved because we see that some of the leadership, uh, like uh, Omari, uh, Abubakari Omadeli, uh, 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 Chokwe Lumumba, and others. But then you had uh, some of the nameless and faceless people that uh, that were involved. And when I say nameless and faceless, people that our people might not be too familiar with. I mean, uh, Betty Shabazz was involved initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 mm-hmm. Queen Mother Moore. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I don't know. Um, because we might have a couple of callers that were involved uh, that'll call in, but I don't know whether Robert Williams was an official member, or I know he was a supporter. But to just talk about some of the folks involved, and and then we'll kind of spin off in some of the chapters and, and mix it all into the conversation. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So you already named Imari Obadeli along with his brother Gaidi Obadeli. And they have a really interesting story that's connected to the city of Philadelphia. The short version of that, because I, I can never say any of this without talking about them, is, is that Gaidi Obadeli was, I mean, they came from a just respected family, period. Family that was known to be involved with organizations like the NAACP, and they cared about their community. Gaidi Obadeli was a Tuskegee Airman. And he was dishonorably discharged for challenging segregation in the military. He was a lawyer. And the reason they started off in Philly and they make their way to the Detroit area in Michigan, because as the story goes, Gaidi was told that as he was going up to the bar, that the bar association wouldn't pass him if he didn't pledge to uh, basically be a good Negro, right? They, they said, if you are going to use this law degree to challenge racism, then we don't want you. And he said, well, thank you, no thank you, goes to, he passes the bar in Michigan and relocates there. His younger brother, 
Mario Bedelli, and, and by the way, they were they were uh, Gaidi was Milton Henry, and Richard Henry was Imario Bedelli at the time. He so young Richard follows his older brother to the Detroit area, and they start to get involved in the local activist scene, forming groups such as the Group on Advanced Leadership, participating in the Revolutionary Action Movement, and after the assassination of Malcolm X. They form the um, the uh, uh, not the Malcolm X Party. One of the nicknames was the Malcolm X Party, and I'm drawing blanks on the official name right now. Forgive me. And they realize that in order to actually get freedom and liberation, they can't try to get that within the U.S. nation state. They have to be able to govern themselves, and they have to control their own territory. I say all of this because just from the organizations that I named, there are a whole bunch of other people involved with these that are, that are key. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So you already named, you already named uh, queen mother, Adi Moore. They're also through Ram. There's that, the connection with Robert F. Williams. They did have a relationship with Malcolm X and through these connections that they made. And there, there are a whole bunch of others. Um, you know, they had connections to the shrine of the, of the Black Madonna. I could, I could go down a whole list. Through these connections, they start to pull people together from across the country. You know, one way I put it in the past was any Black nationalist superstar who was on the scene at the time was at least in communication, from what I understand, with these two brothers. And so you have people like cultural nationalists, such as Malana Karinga, Imari, uh, Amiri Baraka, there are you already named Betty Shabazz, who was who was really important in those early days in terms of lending legitimacy to the founding of this new African independence movement. Uh, people like the late John Bracy, but also you talked about some of the nameless, faceless people, Herman and Ealua Ferguson. Herman Ferguson was an educator in New York who was also involved with a lot of education organizing, but, you know, was also involved in, in some other things, right? He and his wife, Mama Ialua, they were a part of that founding convention, and they had connections with Ram. Uh, Baba Herman was eventually forced into exile because they said that he was plotting to assassinate civil rights leaders, you know, of course, fabricated. There are also people like Dr. Mutulu Shakur, who people may know was a political prisoner for over 30 years. And he, you know, folks were able to bring him home shortly before he passed earlier this year. He was 16 at the founding convention and he was there. And and so there were all of these people there. I opened the book with a young soldier named Ulysses X, who now goes by the name of General Rashid. He also was there and he was one of the, he was the 99th signer of the Declaration of Independence with Queen Mother Ali Moore being the first signer, by the way. So in terms of a cross section, you have cultural nationalists, you have revolutionary nationalists, you I'm sure have, you know, pro-black capitalist types who were there. You have young people, elders such as Queen Mother Moore. You have the widow of El-Haj Malik El-Shabazz who's there. And these two brothers are able to pull all of these folks together in 1968 
and I always emphasize this after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, after the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And I always ask people to sit down and think about that after some of the biggest wins of the civil rights movements, that's when they say we need our own. <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, finish your thought. Go ahead. Okay, yeah. So that cross section is really important because it represented, it was fi- about 500 people, over 100, maybe even up to 200, although I can't get, I haven't found. confirmation on the number of people who signed the declaration, but at least 100 signed. And they were working class folks, lawyers, lawyers galore, such as Gaidi Obadeli, college professors, bookstore owners. So so I think that your wording was really good when you said talked about a cross-section because it was a good cross-section of Black America at the time, politically, economically, et cetera. And, you know, before I pass it to Brother Richard, you know, when our people come together, and I I notice just by just looking at different movements in history, when our people come together, they draw upon the culture of their ancestors. And some of us do it subconsciously and don't realize it because you're talking about the formation of a proposed nation at that time where you had black women side by Mm -hmm. side with black men signing these declarations. If you look at this country here, because uh, you you got people even to this present day, that's uh, a constitutional uh, uh, nationalist or whatever, and they hang their hat on that constitution that was signed by white men, rich white men. It's 1776. No women, although I, you know, I'm just not like, a, you know, draw any delineation between white women and white women. But all I'm saying is they did that based on their culture and what mm-hmm. they were about. But if you notice, when we did this in 68, it was black women there and black men working on this together. Mm. Richard. You know, you know um, brother, um, at, the thing that struck me was the point that you, you did touch on, and that is Philadelphia. That is, um, you know, Brother Muhammad Ahmed, you know, Max mm-hmm. Stafford, um, and the Milton brothers, and that Malcolm was in Philly. So what I'm, what I'm, and, and that becomes when, when they go to Detroit, they being the Milton brothers, they go to Detroit. I see that in your book, you, you, um, place that they invited Malcolm a few times yeah. in Detroit, but, but in relationship to Philadelphia, as you were, you know, putting this work, doing the research for this work, is there anything that you can say? Cause it's interesting about Ram. And when you listen to brother um, Ahmed, he gives his narrative. Is it, what, what did, what did you find out about Philadelphia specifically around that time that produced these types of theorists, organizers and thinkers? Oof, that's a good question. The thing that I noticed about Philadelphia is, is you know, anti-blackness, right? The same thing that we talk about as being prevalent in the South and the Midwest, it was prevalent in the city of Philadelphia. You, you mentioned Dr. Ahmed and 
one document that I work with, he's recounting his experience as a youth learning about um, uh, Frank Rizzo, right? (laughs) And he likens accurately, I would say, Rizzo and his fellow police officers to a neighborhood gang and talks about how they would terrorize black youth. And this is in the fifties, right? They would terrorize black youth. And it is through that terror that they're able to build up their reputations. And then Rizzo eventually becomes commissioner and, you know, all all the other stuff. And I tell that story because, again, we talk about the South, we talk about the Midwest, how horrible it was. You know, these activists who were around then would tell you places like Philly were horrible. You know, the police brutality, the segregation, just the general anti-Blackness of American culture and how it worked its way through the various neighborhoods of Philadelphia, the violence, right? The policing of neighborhoods through through the, the youth gangs. It's that type of situation that makes someone like a Gaidi Obadeli want to refuse segregation in the military when he's going to fight on behalf of so-called American democracy, mm. you know? And so many veterans did that. They, they, were either drafted or volunteered to fight on behalf of the U S to fight the Germans and the Japanese and the Italians. Right. But they weren't even respected at home. And even though I don't, I don't have anything that says that somebody like Gaidi Obadeli recalled this specifically, there's enough stories of black men and, and women who joined the military in the 1940s who remembered their parents and grandparents being lynched and brutalized when they returned from the first world war. Right. And so I think that putting all of that together creates the, the, these two brothers creates the many activists that we see creates the ground to where the black Panther party can establish itself. And we get a Mumia Abu Jamal, right. Mm-hmm. And we get a Russell Maroon Schultz and we get so many other people who are willing to die for the liberation of African people in this, in this, this country. You know, you know, it's, it's, um, as a, there's two questions come to mind and, and, and I'd like to see if I can make it one, they leave Philly and it's interesting that they're brothers, right? The younger brother makes me think of, 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 um, George Jackson and his brother, right? But they leave Philly and go to Detroit. So the question that comes to my mind is, why Detroit? What was, did you find, did you come across, you know, um, what was the reason for that decision um, to go to Detroit? But the thing that was most interesting to me in, in early on in, in the text is that um, three, uh, they invited Malcolm to Detroit, I guess it's three times. And the, the three, uh, that is the three speeches Malcolm gave, gave that's so memorable, uh, message to the grassroots, yep. the ballad of the bullet, and the last message, last message yeah. uh, you know, are like, you know, potent today in America, in, in black America's political psych- consciousness. So I'm, I'm wondering why Detroit and 
what was the, is there a narrative story of how um, and them bringing Malcolm to Detroit and those particular speeches come into being? Yeah, yeah, great question, great question. It's, you know, I don't have any indication of the full thought process that led to Michigan and to Detroit other than uh, at the time Milton was allegedly told that he wouldn't be able to practice basically civil rights law or or pro-black law in in Pennsylvania. But one of the things, because actually this question drove part of my research, why Detroit, one of the things that I can speculate about is the reputation that Detroit had at the time, right? It was a, a Detroit then was it was one of the larger cities had a sizable black population and through some of its governors since the 40s and through into the 60s and in a couple of mayors of Detroit it started to gain a reputation as being a liberal city a city where they were dealing with the racism and it was a little it was alleged to be a little bit more inviting to black folks than some of the other major cities of the time. And then in terms of Malcolm X, the way I understand it, the message to the grassroots was, it was a unique opportunity because, so Malcolm X gave the speech in November, 1963. And in Detroit at the time, there were, there was a, good deal of political activism taking place. Some of it was was based in the factories and labor organizing. Some of it was your traditional civil rights. And then some of it was black nationalist. And one of the things that I learned about the Obadelli brothers and some of the, the folks around them was they they combined the three, right? They cared about labor. They cared, cared about civil rights but they didn't exclude the black nationalism, right? They were, they were pretty pro-black. I think they uh, talked about their activism as being both civil rights and black nationalism at, at various points. And because of all the activism, you know, you had the churches that were active. You have uh, C.L. Franklin's church, New Bethel Baptist Church. He's bringing people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Detroit, and hosting, you have the NAACP, you have these, these traditional civil rights and religious organizing taking place, and they're bringing people to Detroit. And the Obadelli brothers and their comrades are involved with some of that, but because they see themselves as black nationalists earlier than where most of the historians tell us people saw themselves as black nationalists, there's a bit of a fracture. And so in November, they... There, there's a conference that's taking place. It's an activism conference and the Obadellis and their folks, they create a competing conference called the grassroots leadership conference. And they're able, and I don't know how there's actually a, a Detroit historian named Jamon Jordan, who probably can tell this story way better than me, <laughs> but they end up being able to bring Malcolm X to their conference, their grassroots leadership conference. And that's where the name of the speech comes from because the message to the grassroots, he was addressing this particular oh, conference. 
Mm-hmm. And it's around this time that Milton Henry starts to develop a friendship with Malcolm X. Again, Milton Henry was a lawyer. As folks probably know, November 1963, Malcolm X is suspended from the Nation of Islam because of the comments he makes in the wake of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And again, I don't have all the details, but by 1964, Milton is traveling to Africa with Malcolm X. He goes to Ghana with him. He goes to other places. And with that relationship being built, you know, you could start to call in some favors, right? (laughs) It doesn't hurt, by the way, that Milton Henry was also giving regular speeches at, uh, I think it was called the Friday Night Socialist Forum. You know, some of the the political organizing that was taking place, again, I, I named the civil rights folks, the religious folks, labor, but there also were, the you know, the, the so-called radicals, the socialists, the communists, those types of folks. And the Obadelli brothers were involved with all of them. They were really trying to build and get liberation for their people in whatever ways they could. And so having that, those relationships and having in particular that relationship with Malcolm X made Detroit, I guess, even more appealing to him. And again, I'm speculating here, made it even more appealing for him to return there a couple of times to give various speeches um, because of Detroit itself, but also because now there's this this relationship with this guy who's even going to go travel the world with him, right? Mm. And, and if I if I may, now we're in Detroit, and and you mentioned the grassroots leadership conference um, it was '63. Um, it seems to as we move start moving through that the um, the formation of the of the the creation of the Re- uh, Republic of New Africa is um, on its way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, and I might have the order mixed up. So is the first constitution, um, is the constitution, cre- when was the constitution for the Republic of New Africa um, formulated and, and what was that, that date? Yeah, yeah. What I've seen, I haven't seen specific dates, but it appears that they were working on it late 1967, early 1968. Mm-hmm. And and the reason why that, that's um, important, because it seemed as they moved through that, there's something um, going on as far as, which uh, Elliot um, ties to where we, you know, um, where we were, what, three weeks ago and, 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 and brother Lumumba, you know, invited us to there. And that is Mississippi. Mm -hmm. There's what is considered, I I think you call it the uh, constitution. Is it tied to what you would call the constitutional crisis where the headquarters should be Uh, and the differences between the two views of the two brothers at that particular time. Um, You kind of make that, is that, is that a, could you elaborate on, on that thought? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, so Milton Henry was already an elected official in Pontiac, Michigan. He was on the Pontiac City Commission, right? 
And so he had experience working in the the formal political apparatus of the state of Michigan. And I think that that had an influence on him. And again, he was traveling to other places and seeing how folks were doing things, most particularly Ghana, where people he went to Lincoln with were working in the Nkrumah government, right? Mm. I think that that had an influence on how he thought things could work. Whereas with his younger brother, uh, uh, Imari Obadeli, he had a number of, you know, he had a wealth of experience on his own, but not in government itself. And I say this because there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, perceptions, sometimes rumors either originated or at least fomented by the FBI mm. that led to the the people playing up the differences between the two brothers, right? So Milton Henry, Gaidi Obadeli, he was seen as being more level-headed. He was seen as being professional and more cautious, whereas Richard Henry, Mario Obadeli, people saw him as being uh, kind of hot-headed, a little too quick to react, and sometimes the reaction is being a bit more extreme than his older brother. And in between them, because, and I started with talking about Gaidi Obadeli's experience in politics, because in between them were also just differing views on what the strategy should be. So they originally started with a strategy where they would, they would eventually go to Mississippi. They'd have folks move there um, at a particular pace. They would start to run black people for local offices in particular, run them for sheriff, right? Because you talked about Mississippi in, in the late sixties, people like Fannie Lou Hamer, you need a Blackwell. They're running for office at this point, political offices, and they're still their votes still not being respected, partially because they don't have sheriffs who are going to protect black people's votes. Right. And so they place an emphasis on running people for sheriff, make places hospitable for more black folks to go into these areas and eventually take political power through the electoral process. At a certain point, Imario Bedelli, I don't think he ever rejects that as much as it seems to me that he wanted to move things a little bit faster than what his older brother, uh, a little bit faster than the pace his older brother thought would be best. And he wanted to move to the South and to really start to put into place processes for organizing black folks around electoral power. And he was interested in, uh, in particular, having black people go through a plebiscite process so that they could determine, you know, before the UN that they wanted to govern themselves and not be governed by the state of Mississippi. A lot of people saw that as suicide. They saw the suicide because of the terrorism that was continuing to occur into, you know, through the late sixties into the early seventies. And, you know, again, some of this is speculation because, you know, all the documents don't 
laid this out perfectly. And unfortunately, I was not able to talk to either of the Obadelli brothers when I was doing the research. But it seems to be that Imari Obadelli was less concerned with having to potentially defend themselves in a place like Mississippi. Um, a lot, some people were cautious, even more cautious about how they worked because of an attack that occurred in Detroit. You know, the first anniversary of the founding of the Republic of New Africa, March 1969, they're having a, a conference at New Bethel Baptist Church and police raid the church after confronting some of their armed guards on the outside. That leads to a, a, a shooting conflict. One officer dies, another is wounded, and dozens of officers then raid the place in what a lot of what some of the survivors called a shoot in. Okay. And that left an impression that made some people want to be a bit more cautious, but not Imari Obadelli and some of the folks who ended up going to Mississippi with him. The final thing that I'll say is there was a lot of internal conflict, right? We're dealing with humans here and people who disagree on things. You, I should probably bring in Robert F. Williams real quick. He was voted as president in exile at the founding convention in 1968. He ended up meeting with the Obadelli brothers in Tanzania, and they started to work. Again, Gaidi Obadelli being a lawyer, they started to work to bring him home and to make sure that he wouldn't be imprisoned as soon as he touched down or, or be assassinated, right? Once he saw what was happening in Detroit, he apparently was pretty distant and he didn't trust some of the people who were involved. Allegedly, he didn't trust the Mario Bedelli and that led to him resigning his post. And it also helped to facilitate a power struggle between the Obadelli brothers themselves. Okay. So there also was a difference in, how they understood their own internal processes operating that also led to the split. Mm-hmm. You know, Elliot, um, what, what, what brother um, brings out is the, the, the international movement of, of black um, people uh, at that time, right? The intensity that was going on and, and how Mississippi played a integral part at that moment. I, I just find that, um, you know, important to emphasize, especially as we, you know, just had the experience we had and what, um, you know, Brother Patrick and them are doing in Mississippi to, to how that history connects. Um, because later on, I guess we can um, bring up um, how Chukwai Lumumba um, actually as a part of the contingent that goes to Mississippi, if I'm not mistaken. But, yeah. Elliot, you know, I'll turn it back to you as far as, um, you know, if, if you and Brother Oak and, you know, any engagement. Professor Edward, let me, let me, because when I look at any of our historical struggles to develop some type of freedom or sovereignty for our people, uh, it, it's always attacked somehow. And I try to look for ways where it was attacked so we can learn from it moving forward and not make the same mistakes as a people. Now, if you look 
and and you expressed it uh, when you were talking about the early formations. You had uh, a lot of different people involved early on, uh, cultural nationalists, uh, what they considered radicals, uh, people from the church, people in established organizations, right? Mm-hmm. And they were meeting a lot of times at churches. Yes. Now, what drove or no, 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 let me, I got to try to fashion this properly because it's going to be a two pronged question. Um, at that time when they were signing the constitution for the Republic of New Africa, it was one thing that really was missing, which was the representative component, the, the quote unquote political component to engage the system that we lived under. Now, we already, just like Richard expressed, it was already a kind of political component when you had people coming from all over uh, uh, agreeing to sign the Constitution. But I'm talking about a leadership component to engage this system that they were fighting to liberate our people from. Uh, You didn't have that many black elected officials at that time. Yeah, yeah. So it was developing. And you could see that from the signing of the Republic of New Africa leading up to the the uh, Black Political Convention of 72, because a lot of the people in the Black Political Convention of 72 was involved in that movement. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. Now, let, let, let's look at that. We've seen where the powers that be, seen that Blacks were trying to develop sovereign movements or a st- established sovereign movement. So COINTELPRO gets busy on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But I also see that it was a two-pronged approach used by Europeans at that time. They used the, the force approach or the iron fist approach with the with COINTELPRO and the FBI, the CIA, and others. But they also use what I considered, uh, for them, a sophisticated approach, saying, wait a minute, if these blacks are trying to start developing political leadership, let's cut them off at the pass. Let's develop black political leadership also. Mm. And have them, not to the point, because... You've seen early on where they were working together, even though they had different opinions and different approaches. But later on, and when I say later on, maybe 10 years later, some of those newly elected black officials did not want to work with grassroots organizations. And I think that was a plan. Talk about it from your perspective of doing research for this book. Oh man, that's a whole can of worms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah. In terms of the, what you're saying about the political component, um, yeah, there were very few elected officials involved from the beginning. There were some who would become elected officials, such as Kenneth, Co- uh, Kenneth Cockrell, right, from Detroit. And there was, um, yeah, so there were a few, but yeah, you're right. There weren't that many. And, you know, and this is just my take on things. Many people who had those types of political ambitions 
it seems to me that they were willing to run for such positions because they wanted to make things work within the United States of America. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and if I'm being charitable, they probably saw it as in black people's best interest to have a quote unquote seat at the table playing by the rules that have been set out by the United States of America. Okay. That's if I'm being charitable, if I'm not, which I'm usually not, I thought, I think that many of them saw some personal gain, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe not, maybe not all of them, maybe not from the very beginning, but definitely by the mid to late seventies and definitely into the eighties, there's a lot of personal gain who needs the grassroots when you can get something for yourself. And, and that, that goes hand in hand. I, I love the way you frame the question. It goes hand in hand with COINTELPRO because the security state, right? The, the different agencies that surveil and criminalize and punish, they're always trying to, they're always trying to use a range of strategies and tactics in order to maintain control. Yes. And so if, you know, if we think about, if we just take it back a little bit further, you know, with the NAACP, W.E.B. Du Bois, the Robesons, you can either get along with this anti-communist thing and stop talking about, you know, the crimes that we commit against you, <laughs> or we can make your life miserable. And some people decided to get on the anti-communist thing and they continue to be favored organizations by the political establishment. Others said, I'm not going to do that. They lost their passports and livelihoods and things of that nature for thinking about Du Bois and, and Robeson. Same thing, right? They, they probably just refined that, that particular tactic a little bit more by the late 60s, early 70s. And for those who don't go along with the program, who don't take the, who don't take whatever bait, whatever financial incentives are, are provided, they get the hammer. They get the overt repression. They get the assassinations. They get the infiltration and the destruction. And one of the things that Robert F. Williams saw from the jump, apparently, was how heavily infiltrated the ranks were within mm-hmm. the New African independence movement when he returned to the U.S. from being overseas for so long. And people now know that, yeah, there were informants probably who signed the Declaration of Independence, right? Mm -hmm. Because the infiltration was occurring before the formation of of the actual movement officially, right? And so, yeah, the two definitely go together. You you try to coerce some, you co-opt some, you make them black capitalists, you make them, you know, the, the leadership of their people. And if we bring it up to 2020 and 2021, you wag your fingers, say, yeah, not black if you don't vote for me, and you talk down <laughs> to them, right? <laughs> and then those who don't get the program, they get labeled as criminals, terrorists, enemy combatants, all these things that hopefully people are recognizing how this sounds like how they talk about folks in Vietnam or Iraq or wherever else, because the foreign policy and the domestic policy go hand in hand. They inform each other. The the different techniques that the state used to neutralize African people and any dissidents in this country 
was something that they probably perfected in a place like Vietnam, which they first learned how to do by repressing black and indigenous people, right? So, so that they go hand in hand. And if, if you can't get people to stay in their place, to allow themselves to be puppets of the state and to play by the rules and all that type of stuff, then, then yeah, you, you have to eliminate them or at least and, and eliminate meaning murder, incapacitate either because they lose they lose their enthusiasm to be in the movement or you put them in prison or exile them and, and things of that nature. <laughs> we're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. Uh, there's a couple folks online. We're going to go to their calls, but you can also join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Our guest this evening in conversation, author, Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at Sinus College, Professor Edward O. <laughs> Professor, <laughs> Professor o- o- Onasi. Onasi, yeah. Onasi, okay. We're going to take a brief break when we come back. Join the discussion. Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasting or live program scheduling. Hit them up at time for an awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. The Digital Plantation, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. abibitumi.store is here for you. 
A B I B I T U M I Black Power A B I B I T U M I The only word you need to know to join your global commit to you black family to join your interconnected commit to you black communities escape the digital plantation now abibitumi.com abibitumi.tv abibitumi.tv.com abibitumi.store we are here for you escape the digital plantation a new era a new phase of the struggle where we have moved from a struggle for decency which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years to a struggle for genuine equality and this is where we are getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far people were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality do you think white people in this country and i'm talking about non-segregation this people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism do you have any idea of what they want the negro to be in america i think the vast majority of white americans uh will go but so far it's a kind of installment plan for equality and uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh to go but so far and know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money a few of us got positions a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down no one man can rise above the condition of his people see brother said responsibility is it is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table the power that's in our community the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in america we have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda thank you whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power one of the time honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who have achieved recognition but look at raft bunch Think about Lena Horne or Mary Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young, but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sorted piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated. humiliated not being able to fight back as a form of severe punishment i come here tonight and plead with you believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody as i said to the group last night nobody else can do this for us no document can do this for us No Lincolnian emancipation 
proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian civil rights bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Let anybody take your manhood. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 8.09 here in this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation, author, Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at Ursinus College, Professor Edward Unasi is with us in discussion this evening. The book, Free the Land, The Republic of New Africa and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State. You can get involved in the discussion and conversation this evening by dialing 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. Professor O., uh, yes. Before we went to the break, uh, you and Richard was talking about uh, uh, the political ramifications and what was going on on the other side, so to speak, in reference to the movement or the independence movement of our people uh, for, uh, and the formation of the Republic of New Africa. Uh, talk about from your book some of the uh, goals that they sought to address as a collective group uh, after the signing of the declaration, what were some of the, the points that they wanted to try to start dealing with beside, beside reparations? We know that was a major, uh, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. The first, one of the first goals was to bring Robert F. Williams home, which I touched on briefly a moment ago. And yeah, as, as I said, they started to work on that. They went and met with him and they eventually brought him home and uh want to say October, September, October, 1969. One of the first, even, even before bringing Robert F. Williams home, you know, by signing this declaration of independence, the people who convened and who actually put their names on that document they were acknowledging that they were, they had U.S. citizenship forced upon them through the 14th Amendment. And so by signing the Declaration of Independence, they were telling the world that they wanted to organize their people to, to eventually be recognized as a sovereign nation with its own land, right? And I, I say all that because one of the things that nations around the world have is a military. And there were military people who helped to found the New African Independence Movement and who made sure that international law, that, that the, the people who were founding this movement and th- this nation were adhering, knowledgeable of, and adhering to international law. 
Okay. In order to be recognized as a nation, a sovereign nation, one of the things that they had to do was to create a military and they created the black Legion, also known as the new African Legion. And another, it's, it's actually worth saying just a little bit more about that. One of Imario Bedelli's books that he first wrote before the signing of the Declaration of Independence was called War in America. And in that book, he outlines the various ways that the United States has waged war against African people, but also how African people, every step of the way, have, you know, because they had no choice, they've participated by defending themselves, right? And in order to continue to defend oneself, especially if they're trying to to, to claim before the world that they should be recognized as an independent black nation, they recognize that 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 war wasn't going to stop just because they put their names on a piece of paper and they were trying to organize their people to go through a unit, UN monitored plebiscite in order to gain that international recognition, okay? And so that was one of the really important tasks was to start to get that, that military formation together because they knew based on what they had seen, based on what they many of them had experienced in their own lives, that those attacks wouldn't stop even if the international community said we recognize these folks for who they say they are. So they wanted to bring their president home. They wanted to form a military. They were trying to acquire land. They were trying to acquire land, my understanding is, in both Mississippi and in Georgia. And in Mississippi in particular, and now I'm, I'm going from 1968 to 1970, 71, 1971, I should say. In Mississippi in particular, they start to negotiate for some land in uh, Bolton, Mississippi, which is outside of Jackson. And they're trying to purchase land from a black landowner. Now, we've already talked about government repression. Of course, that's something that we have to factor in to this part of the story, because as soon as they start to negotiate, there are agents who are telling this black landowner that he shouldn't deal with these folks. They're going to bring nothing but trouble, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he eventually pulls out of the deal and says that, you know, they weren't paying him. They weren't upholding their part of the bargain and that type of thing. So, so land becomes the acquisition of land becomes very important. And I mentioned the plebiscite is worth noting that while we're still thinking about the cross section of people who were either involved from the beginning or who were interested this idea of a plebiscite was not unique to the new African independence movement. If folks are familiar with the 10 point program of the black Panther party, point number 10 also talks about having a UN monitor plebiscite, you know, probably because they were to no small part influenced by the revolutionary action movement and had some of those forces, some of those really high power people such as queen mother, Ali Moore, even indirectly influencing them. And so organizing around that idea was something that became important. And of course, 
we talked about some of the divisions, some of the internal conflict. One goal was to unify the various forces in the Black Liberation Movement. The way that I've heard um, people in the Revolutionary Action Movement talk about it, they wanted to, their idea was they were going to be a part of it in order to be the, you know, the, the quote-unquote radical wing of that movement. But then there were other forces that were trying to appeal to to some of the people who were thinking along the line of civil rights, who were thinking along the lines of integration and things of that nature. And all that to say that political education became really important, having what they called nation-building classes and making sure that they're available to people to the degree to the degree that they're able to bring people in also became important and kind of became a goal in and of itself. Okay. Go ahead, Richard. I thought I was gonna grab your call, but go ahead. Uh, well, go ahead, grab the call and then we can come back after. Let's go to five oh four. Five oh four. Five oh four, can you hear me? Louisiana. Yes, I can. Okay. Thank you. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Um, I want to thank uh, Brother O for his scholarship and the work that he's done that informs um, those who are not able to really know the history of the RNA. Um, it's an important task that he has fulfilled. And it's a journey that he has started on, and hopefully um, he'll be able to fill in the missing links during this journey to those blacks who are of the mindset of looking for freedom. And when I say freedom, I mean liberation under the the, the guys and the laws and the protectorate of a sovereignty that most blacks have no idea or, or understand what the meaning of sovereignty entails. That's what the R&A was about. Um, I want him to, to, if he could, expound upon the attack of the RNA by the FBI and the, and the military government in Mississippi that um, produced the trial that uh, Chokwe Lumumba eventually uh, freed those that have been arrested. They, 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 they raided the farm for a specific reason, and that was to bring brother who had gone into exile back, which they did, but Chokwe was able to defend him positively. Could you go into that, Brother O? Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you're talking about the 1981 attacks that occurred. Uh, and where, yeah, so in this situation, all right, so hopefully folks are familiar with the Black Liberation Army. And if not, the Black Liberation Army was an underground, semi-autonomous 
military formation that had some roots in the Black Panther Party. And that, that's the official story. One of the things that I am beginning to see is that, yes, the Black Panther Party was huge in the formation of the Black Liberation Army, but there were already military formations and paramilitary formations that were, were active by the time the Black Liberation gets started. So I'm not sure what all the connections are, but um, that starts to become a known entity by the early 1970s. And if folks are familiar with the Sada Shakur, you know, she was a part of the Black Liberation Army. Okay, so by the late 1970s, several folks had gone underground in order to help to carry out the various actions that would help to, you know, in some cases fund activism, above ground activism, and also to, in my understanding, to, you know, wage war to some degree against the, 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 the power structure, right? And so, for example, if the police killed somebody, which they often did, then there were some cells, and again, these are autonomous cells. What one cell does doesn't necessarily mean the other cell knew about it or agreed with it, right? But if, if someone in a particular cell saw that and they wanted to exact some retribution, then there that may have occurred, okay? One of the things that people say that the Black Liberation Army was responsible for was helping to liberate Asada Shakur from prison. And another thing that they are said to be responsible for was um, what was executing a number of what they called expropriations, right? What the mainstream press would call bank robberies and armored truck robberies. And in 1981, there was one of those expropriations that that did not go as planned. Uh, typically, my understanding is they tried not to have to use any any excessive force in order to get the funds that they were trying to get. And in this case, not only did they have to use force, and it led to a couple of deaths of police officers, but they also were somebody saw them transferring money and, and things like that from one car to another, and they got caught, and that led to more violence. So in this moment where there's this extreme violence taking place, uh, the FBI started to raid a number of locations throughout New York, because it, it happened in Nyack, New York, by the way, 1981 Brinks expropriation in New York. So they, they raid a number of places in New York that leads to more bloodshed, the deaths of several activists, but they also implicate Bilal and Fulani Sunni Ali, and they had a farm with some other folks that, 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 that they shared with some other folks in Birdtown, Mississippi. And the way this story goes is, is pretty bad. They do a pre-dawn raid. You know, they bring agents and soldiers from various states, not just Mississippi, because that's how they tend to do. You know, you, you bring all the, you bring people from a number of states as a show of force and intimidation. They roll up there with tanks, helicopters, etc. arrest 
all the residents, which are mostly children, by the way, and some children are so small, according to how Chokwe Lumumba narrates it, that they can't even put cuffs on them. And so they zip tie them instead. They arrest the residents, which is Fulani Suni Ali, a, a sister named Jerry Gaines, and Fulani Suni Ali's father, uh, Baba Elajo. And they also put out a warrant for the arrest of Bilal Suni Ali. Now, both Fulani Suni Ali and Bilal Suni Ali, they're musicians. Fulani Suni Ali was actually one of the backup singers and dancers for Mary McCabe. And Bilal Suni Ali was a part of the Midnight Band with Gil Scott Heron. And he actually was traveling. He was in Europe, I believe, when all of this went down. And so Chokwe Lumumba ends up defending them. And, you know, of course, if, if you go through some of the newspapers of that time, you'll see all the horror stories. Oh, these black terrorists, these black militants, this. They, they were conspiring to kill police officers and, you know, all that type of stuff. And through his brilliance as a lawyer, Lumumba's able to get them, you know, he's able to prove that they're innocent, basically. And so they end up, um, I, I believe, yes, yes. Fulani Suni Ali actually refused to cooperate with a grand jury investigation. And so she's detained while that inv- investigation's ongoing. And, but again, Chokwe Lumumba ends up proving their innocence. And, you know, as, as bad as that is, it, they don't ever get convicted of anything. And I, I think the, the uh, summation of that is the United States government made Chokwe Lumumba pay for yeah. getting them off uh, by taking his law license yep. away. And he fought for seven years successfully and got them back. And this was what allowed him to become mayor of uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Free the land, my brother. Absolutely. And thank you. Yeah. By any means necessary. Thank you. Brother West, thanks for your contribution. You know, we're, we're, if I, um, do you want to go to another caller? Well, yeah, let's run away. Yeah, let's go here. Let's go to uh, 662, Mississippi. Yeah, free the Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. uh-oh. <clears throat> well, go ahead, Richard. He'll call back. No, I was I was going. You know, one of the things that um, that I wanted to you know bring back up, um, brother, is the question of for you to ex, uh, expand on you know what is the new African political science. I noticed that that was besides the new African um, independence movement that the you know. So what 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 did you discover curtailed? the new African political science. Yeah, the new African political science, again, in my understanding, because, um, you know, I'm fortunate to have been able to talk to a lot of elders about all of this. And some of them still tell me I'm not quite getting it right. So (laughs) with that disclaimer out there, um, the new African political science, as I understand it, is basically a framework for thinking about new African uh, independence and liberation, right? And the way that I 
try to break it down for myself and for the readers is by saying that there are a number of different assumptions that go into it, right? The assumption that black people are a nation, Africans in the United States of America constitute a nation and they're basically they're, they're because they're not free, they're internal colony. Their internal colony, and this is another assumption, because through the th- through the wording and the use of the Fourteenth Amendment, which was supposed to be an offer of citizenship, instead it became a way to force reincorporate this newly freed nation against their will into the U.S. body politic, and then as another assumption but not even as full citizens, right? As sub-citizens, as people who continue to be terrorized, there's all types of attempts to re-enslave African people. You know, we, we know that there's an nadir that occurs uh, shortly after Reconstruction. And then there's Jim Crow. There's, there, there's all of these problems. And so you force citizenship on these folks but then you don't even give them the protections that the 14th Amendment calls for, right? Mm-hmm. New African independence is another assumption that I lay out. New African independence is both dependent on and will help to contribute to the liberation of oppressed people all over the world. So it has to be, it can't just be something that is focused only on Africans in the United States of America. They have to be concerned with what's happening in Cuba, what's happening in Venezuela, what's happening in Haiti and in Nigeria, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and not only African nations either, but what's happening in Vietnam, what's happening in China, right? And through the independence of new Africans, they can help to make basically the world safer for other nations to get their independence as well and to throw off the all this this brutality of global white supremacy. And then the final assumption is that uh, new Africans are due reparations, and that's both a monetary payment, but it's also land. It's also those five states in the South, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. And it's only through paying those reparations, which they don't expect will just be handed to them, by the way, that Black folks can do for themselves what the U.S. nation state refuses to do for them, and that's to help them become whole, free, sovereign, and self-determined people. Thank you. Let's go back to 662, Mississippi. Yes, yes, but... Baba Elliot and Baba Richard. Brother Patrick. And uh, the good brother. Yes, sir. The good brother, Dr. O, uh, whose book we have uh, in our cultural center here in Coldwater, Mississippi. Um, Fantastic. I'm going to meet you, uh, Dr. O. It's also uh, a a, a pleasure, you know, to listen to the detail in the background history about the Republic of New Africa that has reconfigurated itself in my spirit, mm. you know, to help me better understand what it is that we're doing here in Mississippi. You know, uh, we we right now operate 
under the banner of the Black Liberation Movement. And um, most definitely, uh, you know, what I'm hearing is uh, it's satisfying to my soul and it's satisfying to my spirit. And one of the things that I wish that we would do as a people, you know, is, 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 is do a better job of remembering and making more iconic the, the NIL of Chuckway Lumumba. Uh, the NIL being the name, the image, and the likeness mm-hmm. of Chukwe Lumumba. Uh, we just had a summit that uh, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard were, were, were able to attend. I'm so grateful that they had the opportunity to come down to Jackson, Mississippi, to attend the summit with us, where we featured, you know, the the, the life of Chukwe. I, tr- I tried to do the best that I could to bring it front and center because of how important his vision was, mm-hmm. you know, took away the manifestation uh, uh, of the practical aspect of what it is that we talking about, you know, so we trying to do our best to become the practical application of the theory of what we had, uh, our ancestors had set forth for us and to be the fulfillment of that. And like I tell people all the time, liberation had never failed. It just had never been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And so we have to have some black people, uh, with some courage to uh, take on that audacious task of uh, liberating our people. And as I sit here and I listen to Dr. O uh, give us the detailed history, I, I understand why, again, you know, my spirit is configured the way that it is. Uh, we got to get to the practical aspect of this, you know, and I'm thinking about, you know, all the components of liberation, you know, the political components, you know, that we're trying to put in place, uh, uh, Dr. O, by going back into the predominantly predominantly black counties that uh, situate themselves uh, from Memphis to New Orleans, all throughout the Delta. And we have uh, gov- 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 governor candidates, people that's running for governor right now by the name of Brandon Preston, that's using their historical knowledge that our ancestors compiled about our demographics, you know, what we are configured in this state. And they're using it, and they're using it as uh, campaign material, hmm. you know, to black people who don't understand our history. They don't understand what it is that you're saying right now. Hmm. And so what we're doing with the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi on the move, we're launching a political campaign to do exactly what Brandon Presley is doing, you know, with these so-called black professionals that's going out there and taking the voting base and exciting them on, on, on facts that have already been presented to us. We are predominantly black all throughout the Delta, and there's certain aspects that we should control politically. So to re- to hear all of this, you know, rehashed in this conversation, you know, it, it, it reconvicts me again, you know, as to what it is that we need to be doing because we fight in a civil war. We 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 fight in a historic battle of of of, of, of Negroes who want first class citizenship versus black people who want black power and self government. And so we want to re-ignite uh, the black power aspect, you know, and, and, and build upon that. So, you know, it, it, it's just been great listening to the conversation uh, coincide with what it is that we're doing here, you know, in Mississippi. And, and I say a lot of times that, you know, our megaphone is not loud enough, you know, and, and just to hear this conversation taking place, you know, it does, you know, the soul good, because we fight down here. As little as it may be known, we fight down here to organize ourselves and to situate ourselves. We, we, we should be doing something as audacious as what Charles Blow 
and um, some of the great contemporaries today is talking about reverse migration. And we're really talking about, you know, a serious uh, citizenship, a uh, uh, serious uh, uh, governing of ourselves in this Western Hemisphere. We need to really look at a reverse migration. We need, we need to really look at, you know, configuring um, uh, uh, th- these five states and utilizing these uh, predominantly black cities, you know, from Atlanta to uh, uh, Montgomery, Mobile, Alabama, to Jackson, Mississippi, to Shreveport, Louisiana, all the way to New Orleans, increasing the CPI, increasing the, the, the monetary exchange between black businesses. And Chuck Way spoke to that when he became mayor of, of, of Jackson. He petitioned that. He called it solidarity economics. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it, it behooves me why we are not talking about this on a serious level today with our, you know, with our black politicians and, and even just black people in general. Why this conversation so evade? You know, why are we not talking about this uh, outside of a black liberation movement building power center? You know, this got it got to become more of a conversation. And when people like Chuck Way lead, you know, I know people in the Malcolm X grassroots movement. They, they their spirit leads as well. You know, when Chuck Way left, these people's spirit died as well. So we we trying to re uh, ignite that spirit. Uh, Dr. O and uh, Brother uh, Elliot and Richard can attest to that, you know. So it's just good to hear this conversation taking place, man. And uh, I, I'm enjoying it. And that's pretty much all I I had to say. Brother Patrick, Thank before you. you before you go, you mentioned the uh, the struggle between uh, word that again the struggle between blacks striving for first class citizenship yeah. and others striving for sovereignty. Put it in your words again. Yes, well, it's a civil war. It's a civil war. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, the black community is the struggle between the first class, the, the Negro that's seeking first class citizenship and black people who are seeking black power and self-government, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and right now I feel like we, we losing that, you know, and, and we got to create, you know, more of a push. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. In fact, Thank I'll, you. I'll leave I'll leave your mic open just in case you wanted to say some more. But go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I, because as I was going um, um, through the book, um, free to, free to land, the Republic of New Africa, and the pursuit of of the black nation state, I, I felt like, and I'm tied tied to a question, but I, I felt like it was something. How do I want to put this? It was inspirational for. Um, if you you perceive yourself engaged, you know, it's one thing when you're you're just pursuing knowledge for your you know knowledge sake, or you're pursuing you know just to say I'm aware of something. And and as you said, brother Patrick, you know, compared to being engaged in you know having to um, interact. And as I was um, going through the um, book, brother, what I felt was that it it reinforced. Um, for those who were thinking from a sovereign thinking perspective, thinking from an independence perspective, it was reinforcing this history. Um, and I'm glad you said you were um, you were in common because that was one of the questions that, that I wanted to be clear of, in conversations with elders who were there. Right. And who was still like, wait a minute, brother. I mean, you good, but you know, like, wait a minute, you ain't getting that right. Uh, <laughs> you got to, you got you to come back. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, 
that's that's how that intergenerational conversation should take place when we're actually engaged, right? So in reading that, but the the um thing that 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 struck me was the um going to the point about the naming convention, yeah. um, how important naming was, um, even to that point of how Africa was to be um, spelled. And yeah. and the thing about the naming convention and, and some of the examples, and I just wanted to give mine, because um, some of us, when we went through the, the naming ceremony, it was, you know, like it was a process, you know, but that you wrote, you raised in the book of how people had to internalize changing their name, incorporating their name, how that name as a reflection of being a part of this, not just an independence from a nation state perspective, but independence as dealing with black consciousness yes. and naming change being a part of that. So, uh, um, you know, uh, in seeing that, reinforce like how this because I, I i've experienced that but i wanted to, to kind of develop that that why and it seemed like it was longer than even other chapters why you felt that the naming convention that meaning naming process was important to emphasize yeah 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 these are these are great questions and points and just to start there, because I do want to address a couple of things that Brother Patrick said, and, and, and thank you for calling in, Brother. Um, the why, you know, a lot of this, as I said at the beginning, is deeply personal. I was trying to figure out how to decolonize my mind, basically, and looking at the various things that people did and recognize that if we're actually serious about this, we have to rethink who we are in totality because through the process of, of waging war, kidnapping, trafficking, enslaving, and even when official slavery was over, continuing to exploit and brutalize, a lot of us developed not only the disconnection with our, our ancestors in our cultures that I think many of us, even, you know, some people who aren't trying to go this deep into these questions are, are that we understand it left deep, deep, deep wounds that we have to understand so that we can then start to heal. Right. And for me thinking about, well, why did people change their names? It just, it became a way for me to really speak to that process of, of addressing, first of all, recognizing ways that we were hurt. And, and, you know, let me just quickly say, none of this is to say, as some scholars have said and continue to say that we completely lost our way. That never happened. Mm -hmm. And we never completely lost our way because our ancestors at every step fought to maintain who they were to the best of their ability. Yes. Right. Yes. But even with that being the case, there, there's there's a lot that our ancestors, our parents, and even us that we have got to deal with. And, you know, when we think about how people like um, um, 
uh, uh, Elijah, the messenger Elijah Muhammad would talk about the lost name, right? As representing the ex representing membership in this lost tribe and how Malcolm X articulated. When we think about how people like Richard Moore wrote about the evil of that term Negro. And that was the primary term black folks were using to refer to themselves, right? If we look at these things, we can see how even those of us who try our best to overcome these traumas, we're still traumatized. We still internalize some of the oppression. Yes. And so with the names, there's a process there. There's a, who are you and where do you come from? And why does that matter? That is built into a lot of these processes, whether it's individual, whether it's collective, people are trying to get something back that was taken from them. And that becomes a part of their healing process. It becomes the process of saying, I'm not a Negro. I'm not an, I'm not an American. I'm definitely not some of these other more hmm. derogatory terms that, that folks call us and that we call ourselves instead I'm this self, this newly created, right? If we, if we will, self-determined being who's operating alongside other people who recognize these same things. And once we do this together, once we do it as individuals and once we do it together, we can start to change our situation, right? And, and you know, I said at the, at the beginning, there were cultural nationalists who were a part of that founding convention, and I don't dismiss them the way that some folks do. You know, I'm, I, I try to be appropriately critical of, of everybody because that's the only way that we can learn and do better. But I don't dismiss them. And I think that one of the things that they got right was not necessarily that you have to reclaim yourself before you can get into the political work, but the part where it had that part has to be done, right? Because some people try to dismiss that part. You know, don't worry about what you call yourself. Don't worry about what you dress, those types of things. And I would argue, and I think that I that I got good information from this research, that actually you do have to do that part. Because if you don't, to what degree are you still using standards that were not created for you, were created against you, actually, in order to guide your own liberation struggle? And And I don't think that any one of us has all the specific answers that can make us do this perfectly, right? But but at least asking these questions and thinking about everything down to the name and individual, at the very individual level, what does self-determination look like can help us begin to get there um, maybe a little bit better than it, than if we ignore these types of issues. You know, uh, Professor Edward, um, Brother Patrick down in Mississippi just mentioned something a minute ago, and, and I'm going to kind of shift a gear a little bit. Uh, okay. When he said a c- civil war is going on amongst black folks, and I have the tendency to agree with him in that perspective because, and I, I'll use an example. Um, earlier this week, I watched an exchange between Benny Thompson and a host on MSNBC, and they were talking about the uh, the legislative body there and the Republicans not having a speaker and the Democrats and the both you know the back and forth. Now, if you talk to the average black person on the street and you mention the Republican Party, 
immediately they look at the Republican Party as enemies of black people. A, a mm-hmm. lot of the people in the party are open racist. They don't hide it, even though the ones in the Democratic Party try to uh, act like they're black folks' friends, but they do agree with a lot of the same principles. But Benny Thompson referred to the Republicans as the loyal opposition. Now, if you mm. look up that term, now, black folks don't consider, the average black folk don't consider the Republican Party any loyal opposition. But he looked at them as the loyal opposition. Now, they don't look at people like Brother Patrick that's doing the work in Mississippi or or or, or or Brother West, who's doing the work in Louisiana, as the loyal opposition. They try to dismiss black people that think like those men and that are doing the work of those men. They try to totally dismiss them. But you look at Europeans who have open racist views as a loyal opposition. That That's a problem. That's, that's, that, that goes to what Brother Patrick is talking about, about a civil war between black folks that want to push the first-class citizenship and others that want sovereignty and freedom. Now, it's nothing wrong with their opinion. Everybody's entitled to it. But at least have the open discussions in the marketplace of ideals among black people so we can come to a consensus of what we want to do as a people. I'll use an example, and I want to play this clip for everybody to hear, including the listening audience, of an exchange that was done. And and ironically, this is the 30th year anniversary of this exchange. The Legislative Black Caucus just had a legislative event two weeks ago, and they brought supposedly uh, visionaries to move our people forward to the meeting. And I played some of the clips on the air on this program, and they were talking about Sean Puffy Combs and LL Cool J and New Edition as being featured speakers. Now, they might be nice folks, but I didn't know that LL Cool J and Sean Combs and New Edition is some (laughs) visionaries for black people to be following. (laughs) But they were mentioned as far as being uh, visionaries to, and, and I'm not putting any words. I played the clips. Now let's look back. Let's turn the clock back. Thirty years ago, this was a legislative black caucus event that should be on the order of what we're having. That should be going on now, but it's not. Now let let me play this. Listen to what both men stated, and it goes directly to what Brother Patrick stated. But this is 30 years ago, and we're still going through this now. Let me play this, and I want your opinion on uh, on this in relation to, and I'm, pro- I'm going to bring Brother Patrick back on so he can talk about what he hears in relation to what he asserted a minute ago. Let me play this. Both men you recognize, but both men is going to be espousing uh, their perception of our struggle. We're winning. We came here 30 years ago for the march on Washington from Texas across to Florida up to Virginia. We couldn't use a single public toilet. We could not use a a single hotel. We couldn't drink water from a single fountain. We did not have the right to vote. 
We didn't have a congressional black caucus. We didn't have 400 black mayors. We did not have the capacity to even think about foreign affairs dealing in private survival. But just like when David knocked down Goliath, he couldn't go and party because Goliath wasn't a eunuch, he had some babies. And you knock down Jim Crow and you got Jim Crow Esquire. The giants keep coming. And so do not, do not end up in a way you say, well, we just, what can we do? Well, we, in fact, the, the laws that trapped South Africa of apartheid in 1948 came from here, from the 1896 laws. What Mandela is trying to do now is what we achieved in 1965. The fact is, we are winning and our struggling has not been in vain, but there are some different options. For example, when Dr. King would make the case that we just end racism by law and get inside the plant gate with an education, we can grow. That was a period of economic growth. Now we get inside the plant and the plant is closed. There's a very different context in which, in which we operate. Zero economic growth among the industrial nations of the world is a factor in this. The economic downturn cannot be ignored. Lastly, what we beat legislation with Jim Crow, but now Jim Crow Esquire regulation. The giants keep coming. And I would say lastly, Aristide is on his way back to Haiti because of us. Mandela got out of jail because of us. We're going to bring that matter to a resolution in Nigeria because of us. And now there's, there will be an urban policy because we will not back down. So in the face of all of these challenges, do not assume that our struggles have been, have been in vain and not productive. I'll take some brief comments from Minister Farrakhan and Representative Waters and then go to your questions. The scripture teaches my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. And it is ignorance that is the worst enemy of the rise of our people to fulfill our destiny. That ignorance is fed on by corrupt leadership. Now, the scripture again says, Woe to the shepherds who feed themselves and not the flock. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Most of our leaders are handpicked by the very enemy that we're trying to get free from. It's all right for us to say we have a voting rights bill and a public accommodations bill, and all of us, including myself, have benefited from those bills. But to get a public accommodations bill and a voting rights bill and then close black hotels because we sleep in white ones or close black establishments so that we can spend our money with our oppressor is not winning. Reverend Jackson, I, I submit. I submit. Wait, wait. On one hand, we are winning because every one of these brilliant congresspersons 
They represent us. They are brilliant men and women. These are brilliant people in front of us. But what good does it do to have a brilliant head not connected to a black body? submit that until and unless we as a mass connect with the Congressional Black Caucus and our black leaders connect to the black masses and don't take your eye off the prize because now you can sit in boardrooms and be media folk now because little black people marched in the streets and suffered and went to jail to make openings for those of us who sit in leadership. Now we've got to unite at the top and develop strategies to free our people. Otherwise, we will be saying we're winning, but the masses keep losing. So if the masses keep losing, then we can't be winning unless our agenda is personal. Uh, We're looking for self-aggrandizement. But if we're looking for the liberation, if we want the liberation of our people, then ain't none of us winning until all of us become winners. I think that sums up uh, the mindset of what Brother Patrick was talking about uh, a few minutes ago. And that conversation took place 30 years ago, 30 years ago, 1993, when the Black Caucus at that time invited a cross-section of what they considered black leaders. Minister Farrakhan was there, and you heard some of the other names that was mentioned, where people put forth their visions of what was going on And you had an audience of just regular black folk. You heard the reception that Minister Farrakhan's opinions were getting, which shows that there is a dichotomy there between black folks in these cities and some of these black folks in leadership. I mentioned in the beginning of the program, when you heard black folks as a collective body in that CBC, talking about what's going on in Israel and how they are in favor of it. That's not the voice of black people on the street. They didn't meet with you. They didn't have town hall meetings to come up with these positions that they're taking. They're taking positions that don't come from their people, but come from somebody else. We have to do something about that. Whether it's uh, uh, what uh, uh, some of the men are talking about now, Professor O, uh, 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 Brother Wes, uh, Brother Patrick, to reignite these ideas of some of our elders, we have to do something to change the direction of where they're taking our people. It's clear to me. I just wanted to throw that in there in relation to what Brother Patrick had mentioned and the things that you've been talking about this evening, Professor O. Yeah, that was a great a great clip and I'm glad that you brought that up because I also wanted to respond to the the idea of there being a civil war. You know, in, in many ways 
historically there always has been. Mm-hmm. There are always those people who want to get recognition and get some benefits from the white supremacist power structure. And there are those who realize that they're harmed by it. And why would you ask the person who's hurting you to do something for you? Right. And they have rejected it. One of the things that I think has happened in the past 30 years since that clip is that far too many of us have accepted the Sean Combs and the LL Cool J's as the the political leadership, right? What people now call quote unquote thought leaders and things of that idea, things of that nature. And, you know, just because of what I'm studying right now, looking at, looking more deeply into government repression, looking into U.S. foreign policy, I'm beginning to understand this idea of psyops, psychological operations, what they called in the 90s, uh, 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 was it information warfare, (laughs) and basically how they tried to shape people's opinions. And they're actually pretty good at it because they poured (laughs) trillions of dollars into figuring this out. Okay, They tried to shape people's opinions by bombarding them with certain information and putting people up front to deliver that information who the people either look up to, find to be acceptable, likable, things of that nature. And it's, it's no surprise to me that the Congressional Black Caucus would now look to entertainers because that's what they think the masses look up to. And, and far too many of us do. We look up to entertainers now as opposed to people who have been studying and strategizing around politics, studying the history, trying to come up with solutions that move us beyond how can we get ours right within this system. You know, those folks are no longer, they're not as popular as they were even 30 years ago. And again, it's, it's by design. Before we, uh, cause I got another call. I want to move on to, let me go back to uh, Mississippi and brother Patrick, brother Patrick. Are you there? Yeah. Yeah. Brother Elliot. Yeah, uh, can you, can y'all hear me? Yeah. I just wanted to, uh, because I, 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 I reached out and played that clip based on what you had asserted uh, a little while ago. Right. And I think that clip kind of right. puts it, into perspective and this is an exchange that happened 30 years ago so if we're looking right. at the direction of black politics and where it has led Hold our on. people we need to have open discussion among people on both sides of the aisle so to speak and what and i'm not talking right. about where we trash them call them names although some people might deserve it but we still have to have an intel they had a they had a discussion there 30 years ago with people of different persuade that were black but now the discussion is with Sean Combs and, and P. Diddy. Right. And, I mean, come on, are you kidding? But uh, go ahead. I, I just want you. Yeah, opinion yeah. Brother, 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 brother Elliot, I'm just like Professor O. That is a beautiful uh, 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 record that you replayed for us uh, to, 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 to top off this conversation because it's relevant. And, and it's so timely. You know what? I graduated high school in 1992. I remember that meeting with Mr. Farrakhan and Reverend Jesse Jackson and the host of them. And uh, to take me back to that in this day and time, show me how far along we have come 
uh, I have come personally in this liberation fight. Now, uh, the the idea of capitulated black leadership, I see it. You know, we 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 dealing with it uh, as we traverse this state of Mississippi, which is probably on record for being the the state with the most black elected official by uh, the, the, the circumstances of our population here. But what's happening is exactly what Mr. Farrakhan said. You've got a head that's not connected to the body. Mm-hmm. So you got this whole Mississippi, you know, you got this whole state that's about 40% black. And I argue with people all the time that we about 50% black because we don't entertain the senses on the, uh, the, the uh, on certain levels. You know, we don't entertain that. So you got a state that's grossly misrepresented uh, politically for black people. And that right there is the best explanation of it that I have heard what Mr. Farrakhan just said with the head not being connected to the body. I was just in a conversation because I try and help these progressive black uh, potential politicians, uh, our brother uh, Andre D. Baby, that's running for the United States Senate. He walked up to me the other day and he said, you're the great one. I said, well, well I don't know what you mean, uh, 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 Brother D. Baby. He said, you're the great one. He said, you're the agitator. I said, oh, okay. Well, I've been called an agitator a couple of times. He said, well, a washing machine is agitated. It had clothes to get them clean. He said, we need you. We need your organizing agitation on the ground to craft the political leadership that we need. And that helped me a lot because we got to do that. We got to get back on the ground agitating to the point where we spawn in politicians to represent the pain in the Delta politically so that we can alleviate that and, and we can push forward uh brother elliot you know brother richard uh professor O, to free the land for real i mean not just in theory we got to free the land for real see this community gave me the name lumumba and at the time i didn't really even understand you know why lumumba but i'm so grateful for that because i understand now you know what the relevance of that and that's and that's why uh brother elliot i, I constantly tell you and and Brother Richard, to keep having these uh, constructive conversations because these conversations help us. validate me, man. You know, it, it, you know, it validates me and what it is that we do against all the odds that we face. Because like Dr. Murphy said before he left, he said, Brother Patrick, he said, we're not as divided as we are disconnected. we got to connect these dots. So, yes, yeah, sir. I thank you all very much, uh, Brother Elliot. And thank you, Dr. O for doing what it is that you have done and crafting that piece of literature that we use and continue to use, and we're going to try to practically advocate that, you know, to the best of our ability. Thanks for your Thank contribution, you. brother. Thank you. Let's go to six. Well, wait a minute. Let me go back because uh, I still got an open line here. Let me go back to the, uh, Louisiana uh, and, and Brother West. Brother West, did you have a comment that you wanted to throw in? Well, <clears throat> what I wanted to say is that the 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 opposition has developed a tool that creates the um, illusion that their hand-picked leaders are representing and speaking for the people from the people's perspective. And that is just one of the many tools our oppressor uses in the war 
against all of us. And we have to be mindful about that when we are bringing about the information about change, the information about us becoming sovereign again. It's not going to happen by accident, and it certainly isn't going to happen with their blessing. But we must understand that a lot of this is crafted and created as an illusion to keep us off track and out of their business. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution, sir. You're welcome. Let's go to 602. 602. Yes, um, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard, and good evening to your guest, uh, Dr. Orr. Brother Marcos here. Oh, he's up. I'm doing great, good brothers. Just to just to piggyback on what um, the, the brother that just cut off stated, Brother West and Brother O. You know, in order for white supremacy to work, you know, you know that's what Doctor Amos said. It you they must recruit from the same group of people that they are oppressing. See, they are only one ninth of the world's population, you know. They are the actual minority on the planet. So, in really, in order for them to stay on top, they recruit from the same group of people that they are oppressing. So, we have to have some type of mechanism in place to let these recruits that they, they use to as a club over our head we have to have some kind of mechanism to let them know, say, look, there is, there is, you're not going to benefit from being joining the oppressor. There has to be some penalty for them to know, say, look, if you go over there and join these people and, uh, and, and, and attack us, there is some repercussions coming to you, your family, you know, there has to be some penalty. Because that is that is the real crux of the problem, you know. These Benedict Arnolds that they recruit, they know that there is no penalty there. See, they, oh, we, we, we can do anything to these people, man. No problem, because they know there is no penalty associated with it, you know. It's like, you know, one day I was in Manhattan, and I saw this Italian, and he was hitting the side of this um, column on a building and said, Hey, Luigi, how are you doing, Luigi? I said, the hell are you talking about, Luigi? Hmm. Yes, Luigi is there. Luigi is in the, in the column. He's, he's in the, the cement in the column. Yes, something like that have to start to reach these black politicians to let them know, say, you're not going to sell out your people and, you know, walk freely around. There has to be some penalty associated to their treasury. I just wanted to say that and keep on keeping on, good brothers. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution. Uh, no problem, good brothers. Thank you. Let's go to 215. 215? Good, good evening, Brother Elliot. Good evening, Brother Richard. Yes. And good evening to wonderful... Professor O, how you doing, sir? 
Uh, all is well. How you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm praise be to Allah. Professor O, before I dialogue with you, I just want to, you know, we'll go back a little bit when Brother Elliot played the clip by the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan and Reverend Jackson. You know, it's almost apropos, Professor O, that he would play that because you know and I know that this Congressional Black Caucus, led by the likes of Hakeem Jeffries and Benny Thompson, and Gregory Meeks, they won't have Minister Farrakhan nowhere near that black caucus. Nope. I'm, you know, I'm speaking black, black man to black man now, you know. Them handkerchief heads scared to death, scared of them white Jews and, and white people pair. Them little, they wouldn't say scared to say Minister Farrakhan's name, much less they even have him at a congressional black caucus. And if anybody doubt what Brother Joe say, all you got to listen to is Cory Booker back here the other year. Now, this Negro, see, I'm the type of person, Professor O, I'm... I, 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 I give out, I give these certain individuals grief, but if you don't put your foot in your mouth, I might be disagree with you. When you open yourself up to it, and what I'm, what I'm basically saying, uh, Professor O, Cory Booker, senator from Jersey, Democrat senator, he said out of his own mouth, I didn't proud him to say it, you didn't, Elliot, Brother Richard, he said out of his own mouth in one of the interviews, I would like to meet with Minister Farrakhan to discuss issues with the black community. He said it just like that. So I didn't probably say it. Then I guess up the pressure from white folks or white Jews, whatever. Two days later, he said, hey, I'll never meet with Minister Farrakhan. I'll never meet with Farrakhan. I never have circumstances. Well, I'm saying, well, who the hell told you to open up your mouth then? You understand, Professor? Well, yeah. open up your mouth then. If you wait, who's the man to keep your damn mouth shut? You know what I mean? That's the kind of Negroes you're talking about. That's why I say Minister Farrakhan would never be invited to this caucus with these Negroes they got in there now. But they, they, they too cowardly and stuff. Cause see, back then you had, I think, Sister McKinney was 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 in Congress back then. You had a few other ones that you you could you, you could hold your head hold your head on and say they got some kind of moral fortitude and courage. But these ones they got there today, and I, and I, and I remember even after he spoke back then, and and I, cause I remember that clip too, with Reverend Jackson. That clip, I remember vividly, Professor. Uh, now you had another handkerchief head, but at the time he wasn't in uh, Congress. He didn't. He was in Congress. So you know, the name Alan West, the, the so-called Black Republican conservative from 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 Florida or Texas, wherever state he's in now. But he he was highly critical of the Congressional Black Caucus, inviting Minister Farrakhan to speak. Cause they, this Negro, he went on. I remember never vividly. He went on conservative white radio, trashed them, saying, "I think it's a very bad idea." And I even let my feelings known to them that they should never invite somebody like. Louis Farrakhan to speak with his racist anti-Semitic demagogue. I said, you handkerchief head Negro. You're black. But again, no shit shock. Yeah, I expect that out of somebody like Alan West. So I'm just saying in closing that, you know, thank God he was in, he was he was able to, to come to that forum back 30 years ago because like I said, with this today's congressional caucus, caucus led by the likes of Meeks and Hakeem Jeffries, that'll never happen no time soon. But anyway, um, Professor O, I'm a 62-year-old black man, and I, and, I, and I like your approach as a young brother. I like your approach that you take to put our history. Because to me, and from what I've been hearing since Brother Elliot and Brother Richard Brooks, you're on tonight, Professor O, you take a methodical approach to our history, and I think that's good because that's what, it, that, that's what it takes. You're almost like a surgeon, the way you dissect things. And for somebody so young, you... I'm not saying you know 19. I'm just saying you're like a young brother from from where I heard, and you, that's the way you dissect our history and put everything you connect the dots and the eyes. I think that's beautiful because you see now, and you and I guess in your in your research, Professor, you see clearly 
when you talk about the Republic of New Africa, you know our people are ready. Our people are ready to have that connection because as a member of the nation of Islam, I remember the old Muhammad speaks with our black Muhammad put on the paper. You saw the old, you see the old Muhammad speak, you see the picture of the brothers from America, the black brothers touching hands with our brothers in Africa and Asia. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that connection is there. It's not just no picture. That's, that's reality because when I went to Ghana, Professor O, I went to Ghana and Egypt back in the summer of 2000. I was a chaperone for some young black children. And, uh, you know, my age is like, I think from 14 on up to 18, I was a chaperone. Anyway, the brothers and stuff over in Africa and over in Egypt and, and especially in Ghana, they was welcome. And they said, welcome, welcome over here, brother. Welcome. We, we miss you. We love you, man. Come, come back here. We want to, we want to, you know, unite and, and, and live as one. So that, so that love is there. And, and matter of fact, uh, Professor O wanted to call us and, 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 um, a past guest to this show, Brother Stanley Crawford, him and his family just went to Africa, oh, I would say about a month or two ago, maybe a month and a half ago, he went to, He was in Nigeria, Ghana, and Professor, you'd be surprised how much the brothers and stuff were welcome over there, man. They were so loving. They, they was like a, like a lost son. So that, so that mentality is out there, or that vibe is out there for our people to connect and stuff. That's why this thing about having connected with Africa, and you mentioned about the states and stuff, that's so important, because as you know, Professor, what I would like, Muhammad always said, five states, he mentioned those same states to lose this, so it's in line with what he was saying, those, those five states, because like you said, we are a nation within a nation. You know, we're a cow- we colony at the moment and stuff, but that can be changed with, with people like you putting out the information and, make, and connecting those dots. So we definitely ready as a people for nation building and having that connection with our sisters and brothers in the continent. And at that time is right now, and they see more and more how white people act, and they see how this government that functional. When you see these white Republicans with their foolishness, they see these white Democrats, and it's not good. And they see the constant selling out of our people by these black politicians. That's why Brother Marcus is, is, is so correct because it's going to come a point, uh, uh, Professor O, where them Negroes going to have to pay for that. These traitorous Negroes, like Brother Marcus, they trade out, they trade out people, they're going to have to have some kind of penalty. And I'm not advocating no violence against anyone, but I'm not saying they have to pay some penalty because right now there's no penalties for them. And they have to start paying some kind of penalty for, for their treacherous actions. Now, in some countries, for what they have done, it will be punished by death. I mean, that's just the way it is in some parts of the world. But, but some people Negroes need some kind of sanction on them for the treachery they have did to our people and 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 brother patrick and 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 brother west from out in louisiana again it was out of following them brothers they said a lot of things that i had wanted to say as well because i mean this is a serious time right and and i could say professor it's right for our people to make that connection with our brothers and sisters in motherland now because we see clearly we cannot continue to think if, unless we're just going to be delusional to think that we're going to be a free people under this Caucasian America when you see how his, his nature is showing more and more. He's not trying to hide his racism and hostility. I mean, so we think we're going, we're going to vote our way out of this. We're going to pray our way out of this. It's not going to happen. We're going to have self-determination, as the clip that Brother Elliot play all the time, Brother O, Dr. O, where he says, like Dr. King said, you have the black man that reach down in his inner soul and sign his own Declaration of Independence, you know what I mean? And that's basically what it's going to take, Professor. It's not all this here, you thinking that you want to love on white people and pray your way. It's not going to happen with these people, man. If that, if that was the case, it would already happen already, you know what I mean? We have got to just come to the realization that if we're ever going to be a free people, it's going to have to be done by us with our blood, yeah. our sweat, and our tears. That's the only way it's going to happen. And, and your book is an important book. I'm going to try to get a copy of your book and, and what you 
teaching at, at the university and, 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 and trying to wake our people up, Professor O, that's the only thing that's going to help you know our people you know, get it together. That's why I say each one teach one. And that's why I agree with what Brother Patrick was said about Elliot, and I'm sure I tell Elliot this all the time when he said about having these constructive conversations between him and Brother Richard, because I tell Elliot all the time, Professor O, Time from Working is an excellent show in the sense that because it's, it's, it's going to people around the country and you even had callers all callers from across the pond over in London and stuff. So when you have people can listen to shows like that, it wakes up the masses and stuff like that because that's the only way it's going to happen. You have to wake up the masses because I strongly believe that if more of our people get the right information, they'll act accordingly. As you say, you know you do better, you know better, you do better. And I think that's when it, that's what it comes down when our people get that knowledge and understanding of what they what their place in society is and what's how important it is for nation building. I think you'll start seeing black people rise up across America, across the world, and they'll throw off the yoke of white supremacy and white imperialism, and at the same time, they'll discard those useless black leaders that constantly sell our people down the drain. And that's all I want to say, Professor. I want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing, brother, because you know you're, you're a bright light and stuff. You're, like, you remind me of our late brother, Parmi Ture. He had a group of kids that he used to... Uh, uh, he's a, uh, a love on hand Philadelphia called the bright lights and stuff and, you, and you're one of those bright lights and stuff like that so I just keep, encourage you to keep doing what you're doing uh, Professor Owen and, and Brother Ellie you know put me on mute and I'll listen to the rest of the show thanks for your contribution uh, you're welcome <laughs> Professor Owen I listen I, we kept you over time we kept you almost two and a half hours man but the conversation is timely and it was good so it didn't even seem like it was, went that long but it went fast <laughs> Richard but you know, but one thing that I, I have to say um it seemed that um as we talked about the you know last question about naming conventions it seemed like you got your name for time from time your another aspect of yourself named um by time for awake, awakening in the sense of Professor O, uh, Brother O. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I just wanted to acknowledge Dr. that, you Dr. know. That. Dr. O. Yes, and Dr. O. <laughs> but, but definitely, um, you know, your work was is inspiring. You know, the book, um, I, you know, and going through it, as I said, um, Free to Land, The Republic of New Africa and the Pursuit of um, the Black Nation State, is relevant, and I think Elliot, um, if, if you know, if the brother would be willing at, in the future, because I think we need to, um, you know, place now our analysis of things like what's going on now, or what went on, what's, what's going on in the francophone countries it, from a nation state perspective. How do we view it? Um, because I believe what Brother Patrick was saying, it is a contest. Um, and it's a historical contest since we've been. We can see the same kind of discussion Martin Delaney was going in. We've seen the same kind of betrayal that Marcus Garvey went. Um, um, he was trying to get land in, in Liberia. We see the same dynamics, um, but we are we we have to be able to keep continue to sharpen. Well, who is the opposition? The tools of the opposition, and our more importantly, our development. So this your research and your conversation with those elders provide us, and I hope um, the Time for Awakening audience recognize, provides us with another tool in the arsenal um, towards this self-determination and liberation. 
Yeah, absolutely. Can I, can I just say something real quick certainly. before we wrap up? Certainly. In fact, yeah, this... um, uh, after you're done, then give out the, you know, if people want to get the book, uh, any contact you want to, you know, if you're on social media, the floor is yours. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, well first of all, I just got to say, I've never been compared to Kwame Ture, and that is a deep honor. And I'll definitely try my best to live up to that. Thank you for naming him in connection to me. That That's, wow, I, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I agree that there need to be some sanctions. And I think that one thing that we can do right now is to simply stop supporting these people who constantly sell us out, <laughs> period, right? Don't buy puffy P. P Diddy Combs products. Stop voting for these people who don't have our best interests in mind. And, you know, they'll eventually realize that, that, you know, they were wrong. Hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> you know, I, there is an opportunity right now. Right now, people see what's happening in Niger. They see what's happening in Haiti again. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of organizations that folks can tap into to support the efforts in these places and other places in order to get information and to show financial and spiritual support to them. And, um, you know, please go to your social media, just look up who's supporting the folks on the ground in these places and you'll, you'll find some organizations. And then, you know, one of the things that I learned when researching for this book was that even as, our elders and our ancestors were fighting against white supremacy. They did make room for solidarity when it, when it was, they were in a position to do so with non-black people who were supporting new African independence. One such person was a, is a man named David Gilbert who just got out of prison last year for his alleged role in the 1981 Brink situation that we talked about a moment ago, right? And so I think that we have to keep that in mind, all of these things in mind, because even as we focus on ourselves and focus on our people all over the world, we don't want to, at least I would argue, it's it's not in our best interest to not accept folks who would not be willing to sometimes sacrifice on behalf of our people in our struggle. And so keeping open some possibilities for solidarity is always important. Um, in, in terms of how people can get a hold of me, the easiest way is through Instagram. It's O N A C I seven. That's Onachi seven O N A C I seven. You could also just Google my name and my contact info will come up through Earth Science college and probably my social media as well. And yeah, having said all that, I greatly appreciate what y'all are doing, and I'm honored to have been on this show. Listen, uh, we got your contact now. In fact, uh, if you could uh, uh, email your contact and I'm, you know, your your, your uh, phone number to uh, myself and brother Richard, uh, we'll make sure that when some discussions come up, some of these uh, foreign policy things or whatever, we kind of bring you in to uh, get your opinions on what you're saying. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. All right. Have a great night, y'all. Peace. All right. Take care now. Peace. <clears throat>
<laughs> Richard, Richard. Yes, yes. Good conversation with uh, the Professor O and talking about uh, of the book, uh, uh, you know, and the perspectives of using that as a template to moving our people forward presently. Right. And not just using it as a, you know, a walk down memory lane to see what the people are doing there. Like, you know, uh, what we're doing now is, is a positive thing. I think a lot of people know that something is wrong with what's going on now. And more and more information is coming out constantly all the time. So, you know, I'm glad that we had uh, Professor O on to kind of talk about the, the research that he did surrounding uh, his work. Um when he sends a lot of those other links, because I know that you can get the book off uh, Amazon and, and there's other places also, but it's probably at, uh, at your local bookstore that, uh, you know, the people patronize. In fact, brother Patrick said it was down there. Now we were on Farrah street, Richard. Uh, mm-hmm. he said it's down there at the bookstore, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, well, I know he said he had it on in their library, but I know with the, um, the sister that had the bookstore down there, I was able to pick up um, Brother um, Obadelli's um, Foundation of the Black Nation, which I hadn't seen anywhere. Because I um, now the one that he mentioned, which would be the first one as far as war, I, I have to find that one. But um, Bro- Brother Obadelli did the New International Law Regiment, United States Foreign Policy, and also the American Nation State, um, the the policy the politics of United States from a state building perspective. Um, these, you know, if we're going to be um, sovereign thinking, we have to have the conceptual framework in order to, on a personal level and to engage, um, to be able to engage in this process of, of how we go about um, actually making, you know, continue to make, because I believe we're, you know, just in hearing with Brother Patrick's story, um, Brother West, you know, others who are actually engaged in this process, it is important to see, you know, as we say, well, we say, there are people doing this now. We have to, you know, we just, with Brother Siddiqui just happened yesterday, we just have to continue to communicate with each other, um, organize with each other, get intelligence, and out organize our opposition. I mean, that's that's what that's what we have to do. I agree, Richard. Uh, you know what? Uh, let me say this too. Uh, you heard Brother Patrick say that that uh, the governor down here is trying to use that's uh, similar strategy to reach uh, the black folks in, in Mississippi. You remember you right. said that, Richard. Yeah, well, Brandon Presley. Is on. Yeah, I, I don't know whether you saw it. I might have email, uh, might have texted to you. He was speaking the other day about rallying black people to vote, and guess where mm-hmm. he was doing it at, Richard? Where J- Johnny T's? You know where we went? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was over there, at Johnny on Fire Street. Right, right. You know, come on, wow. They, they know what they got to do. Yeah, exactly. But we, you know, we don't always have to open the doors and let these people in, you know, mm-hmm. and they're using you for political prop. You know, we don't, we don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. But I just, when I read that, I said, wow, you know. <laughs> it was just there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the food's fantastic, but, the, you know, Johnny T was in some bad company there last week when he had that guy there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah, so, uh. Continue to move forward. The struggle continues. Um, 
before we leave tonight, just uh, give it a little lineup on time for an awakening media. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. African Perspectives with Brother Ushi. Always interesting topics, guests, and dialogue on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on in the week on Thursday from 7 to 8, Mississippi on the move, Brother Patrick Lumumba. Uh, as host, Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi, I'm trying to get Brother Patrick to uh, uh, to let Brother Jaheem, young Brother Jaheem, kind of sub for him when he can't do the program, Richard, because I, okay. you know, he needs about uh, ten hands and two heads for all that work he's doing down there. But uh, you know, that the program is uh, Thursdays from seven to eight. Brother Patrick Lumumba, Mississippi on the move. Uh, Friday's time for an awakening is back from eight until. On Saturdays, Elders of Sankofa from 7 to 9 with host Janine, Dr. Janine James's host. And then Time for an Awakening is back from Sunday, uh, on Sunday from 7 until. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, your children playing after school They seem to be
save the children.